If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, it's been a great week. I hope your week has went well. Um, it's kind of, if you have the handout, it's a little bit of a different topic today, and it's not uh, uh, morbid or depressed. I hope it's not going to be depressing. Um, I'm going to be talking about death this morning, not to prepare anybody, just uh, some things I want to share about in life and in death, uh, that mystery of crossing over from this world to the, to the other there's a lot of mystery around it, but there's a lot of that mystery that's kind of like reviewed in 1 Corinthians 15. What happens at death? And most of us have experienced the loss of someone very close to us, um, passing through that mysterious door called death. Uh, I happen to be in the bedroom with my mom and uh, the other five of my siblings when she finished her journey. Um, and Brenda and I, and along with her family, was standing at the bedside of her dad when he finished his journey. Um, and maybe some of you have, have been in that very situation. It's, um, I, I can just tell you this, uh, it's a sacred thing. I feel like I'm on holy ground when that happens. I have been over at the hospice many times where it's, it's the last breaths, the last moments and uh, on one occasion I really told the family I, I really think I need to excuse myself because I feel like this is really a holy time and it just needs to be you and your family and uh, and I did that with rich care keys uh, what happens what what takes place there that we can't see obviously it's uh, going to be subjective but I think there are ways for us to look at this and see some of the uniqueness and some of the reality that takes place when that's going on. Um, what does the Bible say about it? You know, the medical explanation, they have a cause of death, and they put that on the death certificate. I am a genealogy uh, geek. Um, started out with Family Tree Maker, and then I'm now on Ancestry.com. I do 23andMe, and I've... I researched Brenda's family, been in a lot of cemeteries, took a lot of pictures of grave markers. And now, by the way, there's a, there's a website that, that has done that. It's called findagrave.com. Millions of, of graves in the U.S. I, you know, I know that's a weird fascination, but uh, you can look it up. Um, I, I have copies of death certificates in my family and her family not long after the state started actually recording them. And uh, the South is really terrible compared to the North. Most of my family is from Indiana. So uh, they were much better at recording death certificates. And there it is, the cause of death. Um, and I, I, you know, I've also done 23andMe. It's about my genetic makeup and all of that. And I feel, I feel pretty good. I feel better after I got the results than I was a little you know, like this, sending it off. Um, the Apostle Paul uses the word sleep when it comes to death. We shall not all sleep. This is in um, the latter part of the chapter. If you're there, I think it's around verse 53 or something like that. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. 
in the twinkling of an eye, the trump of God shall sound. So he, he kind of refers it. Is that sleep for the soul or is it sleep for the body? How, how does, what is he applying that to? Is we shall not all sleep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, does that sound like sleep? Doesn't sound like sleep to me. So it must be that it's a word used in uh, maybe uh, uh, in a metaphorical uh, usage, but it seems like there's something in that transition when Paul says, uh, you know, really and truly, if I had my druthers, I would rather go to be with the Lord than stay here. But right now it seems like God wants me here, so here I am. He, uh, he made other statements like that that gives you the idea that he fully expected that the minute he took his last breath, he would be in the presence of Jesus. That he would be there wherever Jesus is. Um, and someone questioned, well, why does it matter? You know, who, who knows what? Why, why do you worry about it? I don't really worry about it, but I think it's worth examining. Somebody like Richard Dawkins will say, you don't worry about it because that's the end. There's nothing on the other side of that door. That's, they just, you just are no more. That's it. There's nothing beyond this life. And for the sake of the day, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 because I think maybe the motivation for Paul to get on this subject is related to what I just said. That some people say, well, there's nothing beyond that, so don't worry about it. And that was infiltrating the church, by the way, the church at Corinth. This is, he's writing all this about Christ's resurrection and how does it apply to our resurrection and how do we deal with death and, and what's the truth behind all of that. And in verse 29, he talks about if the dead are not raised, then why are some people practicing baptizing for the dead? He said if you're... If there's no resurrection from the dead, why are you baptizing? What benefit would it be for someone who's no more if they don't think that there's something beyond that? Um, if the dead are not raised, and that's a question that Paul asks numerous times in verse 30. If you'll just track this with me, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to refer to these verses. He says, if the dead are not right, then why are we endangering ourselves? Why are we taking risk going to the places that's hostile to what we're saying, hostile to what we are preaching? Why would we put ourselves in danger? And on the surface, people would see, well, it's worth preaching the gospel, but it's just not worth preaching the gospel. It's the, what the gospel actually says about life and death. In verse 31, he says, I face death every day. And I think it's over in his second letter that he talks about how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was beaten, stoned, left for dead. And uh, he's talking about, I face, I face dying all the time for what I'm doing. And then he says, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. If you're reading there, I, I, I don't know if he actually fought wild animals. I think he was referring to just people that were like wild beasts. He says, with no more than human hopes, is that all that I'm risking myself for is because I'm just trying to survive so I can talk to someone else beyond this? It kind of also nullifies the resurrection of Jesus. He said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus is not raised from the dead. And if he's not raised from the dead, we're all messed up. We're, we're not only hopeless, we're out here telling people a lie. We're actually telling them that Jesus died and rose again. 
And one of the interesting things, when you read like in uh, Romans 10, where he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God did what? Raised Jesus from the dead, he said, you will be saved. It's interesting how those words in the original flow, because we're not really translating it exactly. It would sound too awkward, because when you get to the point that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, from the dead actually is ek netroi, and necroi is a plural form of necros, which means a dead corpse. And ek means out. So to translate it exactly like the Greek says, and God raised Jesus from out of the dead ones. That group that goes into the place called death, the dead ones, he took Jesus out of that. Jesus is the only one that stepped into that rim and came back totally transformed. And so when he gets into chapter 15, he's talking about that very thing. Every time it refers to Jesus being raised from the dead, it's in the plural, dead ones, instead of just death as, and as an experience or a domain. And he says the reason why this is such a dangerous thing for people to start saying, well, what does it matter? is because they get down, I think this is uh, in a verse or two later, it says it gets down to this where people just say, well, let us just eat and drink and not worry about it. And tomorrow we die. So it doesn't matter if there's nothing beyond that. Let's just eat and drink and not worry about it. And he said, this idea has started infil infiltrating the church. And if you look next, he talks about, uh, I, I really like this in the King James. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Is that what it says? Uh, evil communication. Wait, the people that surround you and start kind of giving you these ideas, they start changing how you live your life. And he said, this is happening to some of you. He even called them out. He says, this is taking place. Come to your senses, I believe is what he said next. You're letting these people influence you to where you're lowering your standing. He said, stop sinning. Stop allowing yourself to be pulled back into a life is life. You might as well do life the way it is because there might be a possibility there's nothing on that other side of that door called death. Come back to your senses. Don't be ignorant about this. And this is, I say this to your shame. He's talking to people in the church at Corinth. It says you're letting people pull you away from godly living by making you think there's nothing beyond this. Which leads to the explanation of how, he, he explains how resurrection works in chapter 15 because people are thinking that death is just, that's where it ends. And he, and he kind of like talks about resurrection as opposed to that idea of death is the end of things. So in verse 35, he says, some will ask, how shall the dead raise? What kind of body will they come? What kind of body will they come back with? And he really considers this a foolish question, but he's going to answer it. And he says, you know, that's a foolish question, but I'm going to answer it. How does he answer it? And again, I'm just kind of overviewing this with you. He reviews it by talking about seed that is planted. And he said, it's kind of like planting the seed. You do not plant what the body of that seed produces. In other words, you do not 
when you, you know, I have a little bit of luck with, with corn, but uh, if I could figure out how to stop the worms, I would really be happy. But I, I grew a little bit of corn. It, it, you know, it looked really good. One of my neighbors watching it was out of town. The, the wind came in and blew all of it down. All of it down. And my heart just sunk. I said, well, but you know what? It still produced corn, and I was still pulling corn off. But what kind of idea would make me pull an ear of corn off, dig a hole, and it says, I'm going to plant new corn. I'm going to throw the cob down in that hole, bury it, and expect. Well, I wouldn't expect if I did that because that's not how it works, right? The seed has to be stratified, dead, completely dormant. And what you plant is not what it produces. It produces a lot of it on one ear, but this is what he's saying. He says, it's a foolish question because when we're talking about the body being planted in death, how is it being raised? He said, it's going to be different. Just like everything else is different. Now, just track this with me. He says, just like all plants are different and seeds are different. And by the way, I, I have in, in, I'm stratifying a lot of, uh, Japanese red maple seeds right now. I'm, I'm really eager for the spring to roll around. I haven't had much luck getting Japanese red maples to grow, but I'll let you know. Because some of you would want one, right? But he says, all of these seeds are different, and if whatever you plant in the ground, that seed, that's what's going to come up, but it's going to come up different than what you planted because it's, it doesn't work to where it just produces the same thing. It produces a body as according to the seed. And God determines why, how every one of the product will be by the seed. He said flesh is the same way. Watch this. He talks about people, animals, birds, and fish. If you're there in that chapter, all of them have different kinds of flesh. The kind that God wanted them to have. And then he goes into this. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars. All of them, while they're celestial fixtures up there, they all have different levels of splendor. None of them are the same. There's not one, there's not two that's duplicate. They're different. All of them are different. And then he uses that comparison to talk about resurrection and death. He said, death is like a sowing. If you look at this, if you're reading along with it, death is like sowing a seed and it's being raised different. This is what he says. The, the, the death is bearing something that's perishable. The resurrected will be imperishable. It's raised imperishable. It produces something that's imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in what? Glory. Boy, I will take glory any day over dishonor. Amen. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And watch this. It is sown a natural body and is raised a spiritual soma, a spiritual body. You see, for us, we think those two things are incompatible, spiritual and body, a spiritual body, a spirit body. We, we look at the one we got here. We'd like probably do something different with the one we got here. This natural body says, but when it is sown, it's going to come back a spirit body. And then he says, if there's a natural body, there's going to be a spiritual body. The natural body 
maintains that there's a spiritual body. In other words, if there's a cantaloupe seed, it means there's a cantaloupe. One produces the other. And so he says, Adam is a living being. He's the first, he's the one we get who we are from. He became a living being, but he said the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. We bear the image. He goes through all this, and we bear the image of both. We bear the image of Adam in the natural man, but we also bear the image of Jesus. And how does he say that? The heavenly man. We have a naturalness to us, and we have a heavenly nature to us. So what happens at death? Is, is, is there consciousness in that transition. I think that's I think that's one of the things we always wonder about is what am I going to see? What what's there? I can tell you it's all right with me if I don't know it yet. Okay? But I'm I'm going to mention uh, a few people. And one is a name you should write down and you should at least listen to a podcast. Dr. Mary Neal. I kind of put her on to other people she wrote a book about the seven lessons of heaven she's a spinal surgeon lives now don't envy her because i could envy this she lives in jackson hole wyoming and she's a kayaker and her and her husband go all around the world with a group of professional kayakers and on a trip to south america they were in a raging river and they knew they had to be on their game. Her husband was having some back soreness, so he stayed back at the motel. But her and this group were kayaking. I'll try to sum this up briefly. They went over a waterfall, and when her kayak went down into the water, instead of coming back up, the front of it got wedged in some rocks at the bottom of that waterfall. She was under 8 to 10 feet of raging water, where they couldn't see where she was at, other than she did not come up. She could not free herself from her kayak. And she realized that this is, she's, this is death. And all she said was, Lord, your will be done. And after that, it was like she was in a bubble. She was not dying she started seeing things she started seeing heaven she had this these moments where she was in there for probably maybe under the water 20 to 30 minutes before when she got out how she got out she's a surgeon she understood what was going on her body was finally being pushed over the front of that kayak and when her legs came through, this, this is a gruesome thing, both her legs were broken the opposite way. At her knees, they broke and she surfaced. It's a great, I, I can't tell you all of the story because you need to pull it up on an Eric Metaxas podcast. If you go on Eric Metaxas podcast and put in Dr. Mary Neal, N-E-A-L, you'll listen to her story. The thing about it is that None of, none of this made sense. It was all a miracle from she should have drowned in the water. And uh, I, I won't try to explain the rest of it. I'll take too, up too much time. But I saw where people have written books saying they're confronting her 
what she saw. A Christian's response to Dr. Mary Neal's experience. I was like, it's her experience. Whether or not, you know, what we're going to say, that's not true, that you, you don't see that in heaven, or you can't have that kind of experience. But let me mention a couple of other people to you. One may, some of you may remember the name Burpo, a family that had a little boy that had a ruptured appendix. And the movie Heaven is for Real was based on his story. He had an appendix that burst and the hospital they took him to misdiagnosed him. And so they decided to take him to a different hospital and he was really in dire threat of losing his life how many of you have seen heaven is for real okay don't seem like that many people you, you you can pull it up the whole thing is on youtube everything is on youtube and i'm just going to mention a few things because he was just a maybe four years of age something like that and um, the doctors didn't expect this kid to make it the poison in his body was severe And yet when he stabilized and came out, he was finally discharged. He was pronounced well, um, but he started talking. He started talking about what he saw. He started telling his dad, he said, "Um, I saw mom talking on the phone in one of the rooms, and and I saw you uh, yelling at God in a different room. And his dad said, um, um, when did you see that? He says, while they were working on me, I kind of came up and I was looking and I saw where you guys were at and, and the, the doctors were working. And then I go in and, and he talks about having this heavenly visit and that Jesus came to him. And, and through the course of the movie, probably one of the most touching places in the movie is when he started telling his mom that he met his sister. And... She said, um, what are you talking about? He said, um, is she, she's in heaven. She had had a miscarriage before she had Colton. He also saw his grandfather, and when his dad brought a picture out, out of his dad, he said, uh, is this the one you saw? Said, no, uh, he, was, he was not old. <laughs> So he finds a picture of his dad when he's younger. He says, yeah, that's him. I talked to him too. I'll never forget Father's Day weekend. I want to say 2000, 2001, somewhere along in there. As we gathered for the service, someone came up to me and said, I'd like for the church to pray for Dr. Bettner's son, who's in the hospital, um, a drowning incident. And so we prayed. And if you don't know the story, you need to just, it made headlines. Kennedy Bettner also had a similar experience. He went to heaven. He saw an uncle that was deceased. He saw all kinds of things. And even the New York Times featured that child. He, I think, was about four Something like that, just like the Colton Burpo. But people were like, kids can't make that up. There were things that they were saying. Now, they can challenge Dr. Mary Neal and say, well, I don't believe that. (laughs) 
but it's kind of hard to say, <clears throat> well, that four-year-old, he, I, he was just like, he was like, you know, probably he had heard things preached and that's what he was saying, but he was seeing things that didn't make any sense other than he was visiting heaven. I want to share one final story with you because this, when Paul gets through finishing talking about death and all, he, he says this, he says, the final enemy, the last enemy is what? Death. And he says, Jesus would bring the last enemy under his authority and some people think <clears throat> that that's going to be in the future. That happened at his resurrection. That he subjected death. He took death's power away from it. And this is why Paul asks, and it's Thanatos this time. It's not Necros, it's Thanatos. He says, death, where is your victory? Thanatos, where is your victory? Where is your sting? And he's talking in the sense that this is a settled battle. The outcome has already been determined that he has stripped death of its power. No longer should we be in fear of death because he took care of whatever is bad on the other side of that door. And so this final story is one of the most amazing experiences that I've had in my life. And it happened in, I'm going to say in the spring of, 1981 I know it was 1981 because then again I pulled up find a grave and I found the exact date of two people's death that's in this story some of you have probably heard bits and pieces of this story but sister Nellie Kittler was I was six years in being a pastor three years into this little church on New Berlin Road in Jacksonville Florida and there was this sweet little Pentecostal woman in that church was a prayer warrior and she would let me know I'm praying for you I'm praying for you and we were at a minister's get together like a minister's retreat at Penn Florida district and this was like landline time on phone calls someone came and says you got a message from someone at your church named Nellie Kittler, she, she wants you to pray for her son, Ed, who has had a cerebral hemorrhage and not expected to live, and he's lost. Pray that he'll be saved before he dies. And so when I got back, I went and visited Edward at the St. Luke's Hospital. Walked in. And um, his brother, Vernon Kittler, was attending Southside Assembly of God. He had been in. We both prayed with him, talked to him. I went over, and I prayed with him. I took his hand, and I said, if you can hear me, Ed, squeeze my hand. A lifelong alcoholic. And yet his mother was standing between him and death, refusing to let him die a sinner. And I said, squeeze my hand. No, no indication that he was hearing us, that he could respond. Uh, massive damage neurologically. Walked in there one day and someone said, he's responding. He's responding to squeezing the hands. Because I went in, I, I just got in his ear and I said, this is, uh, 
your mom's pastor, and I want to tell you that Jesus loves you. He, he wants to save you. If in your spirit you hear me and in your heart you believe me, you might not be able to say it, but if you believe that Jesus loves you and you want to surrender your life to him, just believe, just believe in your spirit, and I'd pray with him. And that particular day, he said, hey, he's responding with hand squeeze. So I, I, I just was eager to walk up and take his hand. I said, um, Ed, this is Pastor Leon. I've been praying for Do you remember me coming here and praying with you? Squeeze my hand. Well, he squeezed my hand. And I said, well, thank you, Lord. So I just like, go for broke. <laughs> I said, have you believed like I encourage you, do you know Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus? Have you believed on him in your heart, in your spirit? Do you know that he loves you and he died for you and he's the only one that can save you? And I just went through everything that I rehearsed and I was holding his hand and I said this, if you've done that, squeeze my hand twice. And I watched him grip my hand and let go and I was watching, I was like, Come on. <laughs> and then he squeezed it again. And when I looked up, a tear was rolling down his face. I could have tore the door off of that ICU unit. I, I could have like, oh, wow. Why is it when we pray for something and it happens, we're like, Wow, it worked. It worked. He, he heard me and, he, and he was, he's committed himself to the Lord. Wow, I walked out of there and said, it worked, everybody. It worked. Well, the story doesn't end there, and I'd like to, for the praise team to come up. Just weeks after he was discharged from the hospital to go home with a feeding tube, he was so severely limited, they had to put a feeding tube in him and and I was told that when the doctor was telling his also alcoholic wife how to fix his food, the puree, it would, to, to make it where he can, you can put it on this tube. And she says, well, what about what he drinks? And he says, whatever he likes, give him that too. And he says, well, she said he loves beer. And he says, he can have that just, in, you know, you determined to give him not too much. And they looked over and Ed is doing this. And she said, what? You don't want beer? I said, well, well, that's news to me. He, does, he loved beer, but he said no. A few weeks after he was discharged, Sister Kittler one evening went home, sit in her chair. She's in her early 70s, wrote out a note to her, her children, laid a list of people in the family she'd been praying for their salvation, propped her feet up on an ottoman, laid her head back, and went to meet the Lord. No cause of death. They rolled that man down the aisle to see his mother. He was in a wheelchair. Tears flowing down his face. For about four months, he was alive. He never said a word. Less than two months after his mother passed away, He was, he came out of whatever coma or whatever he was in. And the people that was in the room said he, he opened his eyes and he looked up at the ceiling and said one word, mama. And what did he see? 
I'm telling you, there's something beyond that door that we should say we should not fear that moment. Don't want to. I want to live as long as I can. I want to do everything I can for the kingdom of God. But in reality, how much more do we need to know than to not fear it? Would you stand with me? And the only thing to fear it is if you're not ready. That's the only thing. If you don't fear it, it's because you have peace about it. Lord, I pray this morning. There could be people in this room who have put their trust in you, but there is this enormous fear of death. And you came out of the death, stripped death of its power, and you say to us, you conquered it. It is an enemy that's been put under your subjection, and it has no power over us. Our bodies may cease here, but we never cease to be. And you declared it, Lord, when you said, whoever believes on you in reality never dies. We will be always in the constant of now. And I pray for those, Lord, in this room it may be a question in their mind about where they stand and may today be a day of sealing where they're at. I'm done with fear. I'm done with wonder. I'm putting trust that if today is the last day I breathe, I know what's on the other side of that door. I know there's a Savior waiting to meet me, waiting to take my hand and welcome me. families that have been through a recent death, Lord. There's great there's great pain on some days. May your truth diminish the level of that pain. And may your peace displace unbearable grief. And there very well could be people here that you fear death. Maybe it's why you don't sleep well. Maybe it's, I've said, the two most dangerous things a person will do is get in a car and lay down at night and close your eyes. And if you need the Lord to get you past where you're at, regardless of what, what it is, you're struggling with it, I want you to come as we finish our service this morning. We're going to pray with you. Thank you, Lord.